Bible Worm, Bible Worm, reading the Bible with Bible Worm. Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. And I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, Professor of Religious Studies at Hendricks College and Theologian-in-Residence of Canvas Community in Little Rock. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish and one Christian. This week we read Matthew chapter 1, 17 juicy verses of genealogy to get us started in this gospel. This origin story seems to be framed a little bit like a new Genesis, giving us all the raw materials, all the ancestors that went into the creation of this new baby, Jesus. His lineage does offer quote-unquote legitimacy insofar as he is in the line of David, but it has both heroes and folks who are not remembered so favorably. And it goes out of its way to name at least a couple of women all of whom had to abandon social expectations at some point in order to wield the singular power of their life in a way that only they knew was right. It makes us wonder, how do we tell our own stories, our own community's stories? Who do we highlight and who do we leave out? All of it makes us who we are. Thanks for listening. Hello, Bobby. How are you? Hey, Amy. I'm doing pretty well. Cruising into December is pretty nice life for the college professor, I got to say. Mm, it is a good time of year to be a college professor. There are times of year that it's not good to be a college professor, though. We must remember those. It is true. Yeah, I feel like every profession has seasons, and this particular yeah. moment is a nice one in the college professor life, but there are plenty like even just a couple of weeks ago, doing finals and grading and all of those mm-hmm, things, that mm-hmm, was pretty rough, mm-hmm. but it's Much good now. less so. The downside yeah. of that is that I'm married to a church pastor who is just headed into like super, super busy time of year. Well, so but then our you're family, well, well paired. Oh, that is true. It is never the case that our whole family is relaxed. <laughs> but at least. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to frame that in the positive, that your whole family is like stressed to the max. Think yeah. about it that way, Bobby. That is true. I like that better. Oh, yeah, there's no. always at least one of us who is able <laughs> to, you know. How are things in your world? Um, things are fine in my world. I am just realizing that I should have practiced reading all the names <laughs> yeah. that are going to be in our reading this week because it's mostly names. It's almost entirely names. <laughs> and yeah. they're, mm-hmm. they're long transliterations of Hebrew words. So we'll see how I do. Yeah, it'll be great. It'll be great. We are reading from the book of Matthew today, the very beginning of chapter one. It's true. Although it's not the first text we're reading from Matthew. (laughs) Right. We did the Christmas story a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. And so now we're coming back. Yeah. I was just, yeah, we needed to, we needed to talk about Christmas (laughs) at that time. Yeah. And so now (laughs) we're kind of coming back. Okay. So so we're starting back at the beginning, chapter one, verse one. And I think last time we said, that we would offer just a little bit of introduction this week because we didn't do it last time. Right. So can you offer just a, a few framing words for us about this book we are embarking upon? Sure. It's always hard to know exactly what to say to introduce a whole gospel in the context like this, mm-hmm. but I do think there's a couple of things that are worth noticing. One is this is called the Gospel of Matthew. It's the first gospel that is in the New Testament, but it is probably not actually the first gospel to be written It is a complicated argument that not everyone agrees about, but generally speaking, most biblical scholars think that Matthew, the gospel writer, had a copy of Mark's gospel, which was earlier, and that Mm -hmm. Matthew takes Mark's story and combines it with some other things to create his own version of the Jesus story. And so some of these stories, a lot of these stories will be familiar, even word-for-word repetitions of stories that we read in Mark. The nice thing was we read Mark like three years ago, so nobody remembers. Um, that's one thing to know about Matthew is that he's done that. Um, Matthew is probably written in the, I don't know, like the mid 80s or something like that, the toward the end of the first century. 
we're so about. So it was like Cindy Lauper, you know. Yeah. Era. <laughs> yeah. He had no, his flock of seagulls days. hairdo and he did all that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> his parachute pants. <laughs> Man, I wanted parachute pants when I was a kid and I was not, ironically, cool enough for parachute pants. Um, anyway, I digress. Uh, yeah, so he's writing in the mid 80s. And so we're about 50 years after the death of Jesus. So a generation, or I don't know how you count generations, but anyway, half a century. We're past the destruction of the temple. And so Christianity has started to establish itself a little bit at the point that Matthew is written. And so you can often sort of see the way that Matthew is telling the Christian story. He's telling it a little bit past, like he's talking past the characters sometimes, trying to talk to the Christian church that's taking shape at the uh, end of the first century. Mm. One other thing that's probably worth saying is that Matthew is often considered to be the most Jewish of the gospels. I'll be curious what you think about that sort of, I mean, all spring as we read it, but he seems to view the Jesus story as a primarily a Jewish story in which Gentiles are also included. That's important for him, but his Mm -hmm. framework for things seems to be more Jewish, especially coming out of the gospel of John, which was decidedly not Jewish. The gospel of Matthew seems to be a little more interested in things Jewish and in trying to show the connections between Jesus and Judaism. We don't really know where Matthew was written. Probably it was written somewhere uh, outside of the Holy Land where there was a population of Jews. People often will say somewhere like Alexandria or somewhere in Galilee like uh, Tiberias or maybe Antioch in Syria, somewhere like that. And even though we say the gospel is written by Matthew, the reality, as you well know, is that these texts are um, anonymously written and only attributed to their authors later. And so the tradition says this gospel was written by Jesus's disciple, Matthew, but the gospel itself actually never claims that. Mm. Those are some things, I don't know exactly what they all add up to, but those are some things I think about when I think about I mean, about already Matthew. some of those comments have me thinking about some of what's to come in our text. So, um, so koa kavod, that's a good introduction to me. <laughs> there we go. Yeah, I like it. So the reading today is verses 1 through 17, which is pretty much a long genealogy. It's exactly what it is. So I think I'm just going to go ahead and get started. I am reading from the NRSV. So picking up in verse 1. An account of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Aram, and Aram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nachshon, and Nachshon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahav. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. Okay, those names weren't too bad yet. No, that was great. <laughs> I, I appreciate that you say Salmon, which I think is the way to say that, but I like calling him Salmon just because it kind of makes me laugh. <laughs> yeah, well, it was right after Nachshon, so yeah. I was already sort of in that, you know, yeah. modality. In my house, we I eat a lot of salmon. I I do, like every, once a week. So we, I eat so much salmon that we just have a day that we call Salmon Saturday. And every Saturday wow. we have salmon. And so my wow. daughter does not like salmon. And so anytime she hears the word salmon, she goes, blah. <laughs> so when you said, <laughs> not so the father of Salmon, I heard this little, like, blah in my head. Yeah. It was very cute. Yeah. That's really funny. Bobby, why would you start this, like, epic, world-changing story here? You know what I mean? Like, I guess maybe I have John in my mind because mm. that was the last gospel we read, but it just sort of gave this sort of like, here's what's going on introduction to sort of draw yeah. the reader in and set the stage for the enormity of what's happening. And I don't, this is a really different way to start yeah. a, a gospel. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Abraham was the father of Isaac. I know. <laughs> yeah, those are, I know. Those are very, very different. 
Sorry. Yeah, no, I appreciate you're asking it that way. And I mean, so, I mean, one thing to say is that beginning with genealogies is familiar, of course, from Hebrew scripture. Mm-hmm. Genesis doesn't actually begin with a genealogy, but as you know, it's got lots of genealogies in there trying to give the sort of lineage of everybody. And the word in Greek there, a record of the ancestors, as the CEB has it, is geneseos, which is just the word Genesis. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. I think in one sense, this is trying to start Jesus's story in a way that parallels the beginning of the Bible in the book of Genesis. I also think there's something going on here about emphasizing the humanness of this story. And there the contrast to John, I think, is really sharp. He's John is very interested in the pre-existent word. And Matthew is interested in this guy that we just called the Messiah has a yeah. human lineage. And let me tell you what it is in a lot of kind of excruciating detail. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, what I else would you that. do with that? I mean, I think I, I I definitely was thinking about sort of the, of creation and sort of this, you know, mimicking creation in some way. And, and as you mentioned that genealogies were a common common way to start, I think not only in the Jewish tradition, but also in some other, you know, maybe Greek or Roman mm-hmm. literature at that time that it was, you know, sort of a way to add legitimacy to a narrative or praise heroes by sort of glorifying their path. Although yeah. as as we'll see talking through this, it's, I don't know if it, I mean, maybe it is glorifying the path, but there are some, some yeah. characters who will be familiar to us who have have taken a different way. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know, in in their lives. Do you think it's worth saying anything about why the very first verse it says it it gives us the son of David and then the son of Abraham. Yeah. And then it starts at Abraham and sort of goes through yeah. the genealogy. I mean, D- David the the Messiah is expected to be the son of David. And so that I got that. Do you think there's anything in particular that they're trying, that the author's trying to draw out about Abraham by naming Abraham here? Or just sort of it's it's going back to the beginning of the first, you know, interpersonal covenant that we saw? I mean, you know me, I always think that the author, like the author did that on purpose and there's something that mm. they're trying to say. And then the question is, what is that person? What is <laughs> well, it? What is it? Yeah. It, it's not incidental. You know, Luke also gives a, genealogy of Jesus. And that genealogy actually starts with Joseph and goes backwards, but it goes all the way to Adam. And it's, so it's interesting that Matthew chooses Abraham as a starting place, both in that he could have started later with David and also that he could have gone further back. Yeah. So Abraham is pointed in both directions. I don't know. I mean, I've got my thoughts about it, but I'm curious you're reading it. I mean, I'm assuming you haven't spent a lot of time in your life with the genealogy of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. Is that, no. is that a fair assumption? So I when you read Abraham there, what like what connections do you make? Well, that's not fair. It was a question for you. <laughs> I mean, I am thinking, and I think I, I'm thinking this because this has been a conversation that we've had throughout this particular season, but about the way that the relationship between God and humanity shifts over those early stories and in particular how it shifts once there's this like inter like it's one person yeah you know to to try to make it work with one person and sort of go out from there so so I've come to think of Abraham a little bit as as that I feel like all my other thoughts almost go backwards I mean he is sort of he is I guess thought of as a, a paradigm of faith he's willing to do that crazy take Isaac up the mountain and almost sacrifice him thing. He's willing to, you know, go forth from his family into something different and unknown. I guess those seem like good characteristics to pull. I love all of that, Amy. I, I You pulled out some several things there about Abraham that are very much relevant to this story as a person of faith and as an obedient person that I wouldn't necessarily have connected to. Where my head goes is that conversation that you and I had way back earlier this fall about Genesis 12, and in in that statement is, I am going to bless you, Abraham, and through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so that sort of echoes Mm -hmm. when you hear Abraham. And so this, this story is picking up that story. This is the moment, or at least a moment, in which the second half of that is 
coming to fruition in a new way. Um, so Abraham has been blessed, and now through the family of Abraham, the world is being blessed. I also think, you know, like the question, like what is Abraham, starting with Abraham, is pointing to the Jewishness of Jesus. If you go all the way to Adam, now you're talking about the humanity of Jesus. Mm. But when you start with Abraham in particular, like everyone in that line, at least all the males in that line, as we'll talk about later, are yeah. Jewish. And so this is framing the story of Jesus as a Jewish story. He is the, in some way, the continuation, the culmination, the expansion. I don't know exactly what verb we're going to want to use there. Yeah. But of what is a fundamentally Jewish story. And we can start it by talking about the Jewish ancestor, Abraham. At least that's kind of where mm. I tend to go. I really like that. That's a really interesting angle. You mentioned when you were talking that, you know, the, the males are Jewish, the sort of that it's a, it's a pretty male list it is. here, the genealogy, right? It's mostly the father and the son, the father and the son. Though there are a couple of women who are mentioned, not as daughters, but as mothers right. and wives. What should we do? Should we talk about the women first or should we talk about, let's talk about the women first. Okay. And then we'll see if we want to comment about why, why the text is sort of structured in that particular okay. way. Okay, yeah. Okay, so the first woman it gives us is Tamar. In verse 3, mm-hmm. Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. We have a, an episode on her. We do. If you've been wondering how did we select the episodes for our special episodes this fall, it was because they these women show up in the genealogy of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. And so it, I thought it's helpful to have a longer conversation about these women before we encounter them here. Yeah. So that's exactly right. So go back and you can find episodes on... Tamar and on Rahav and on Bathsheba. And then a long bit ago, we did several episodes on Ruth. Yeah. So all of, we have talked about all of these women individually along the way. Yeah. Okay. So we have, so you can listen to a whole hour long conversation about Tamar. <laughs> We're not going to have a whole hour long conversation now, but there, she, she stands out in a couple of ways. Mm. You want, you want to name one of the ways? We could take I want, turns. I want you to name the ways. <laughs> I want to know how you're thinking I about mean, it. okay, so there, there are two ways that come to my mind. One is that, and I think you mentioned this in the episode, we are unsure if she is Israelite or not. The text mm-hmm. doesn't say. Ancient sources, ancient Jewish sources also were unsure. There are traditions that she was a Gentile. There are traditions that she was a convert. There are traditions that she was an Israelite. That's what you get from a biblical text that doesn't tell you. (laughs) So there's that. And then there is the unusual nature of the sexual union that brings about these children. And in this case, it's kind of a long story. I don't know. (laughs) We want to go into the whole thing, but for reasons that ultimately are deemed to be righteous by the text, the biblical text, Tamar winds up sleeping with her father-in-law, Judah, after her husband, two husbands have died so that she can, so that she can have these sons. What question do I even ask? I mean, do you want to comment at this point about like what? What is the significance? It's, like I started out by saying, like genealogies are often used to sort of show someone's yeah, legitimacy right. and you know play up their heroic nature. And already we have—I don't want to say someone that you don't want in your genealogy because clearly this is a person who was wanted yeah. in this genealogy. But it's—it's it's not. I, I can't think of words. I, I I don't know the words to use. This this is not what you'd expect. This is not like the the sort of cookie cutter, nice, yeah. upstanding genealogy. Like here's that's the, exactly right. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, what you're pointing to is really important. You one could have done this entire genealogy, and in fact, it probably would seem more like other genealogies if you didn't just mention any of the women at all. You could have done this simply as a patrilineal genealogy yeah. of Joseph. Which and, it mostly is. Which it mostly is. And so you have, by the time we get to the end, we will have named five women, including Mary, who are in the line of Jesus. 
And so you've got to think like Matthew has named those women for a reason. It is not because it is a tidy way to tell the genealogy. He cares about them in some sort of identity related way for who Jesus is or, you know, there is a theological or some kind of importance to them. So that's really important to know. And then, you know, maybe the way to, here's one way of approaching it, which might be uh, helpful is just to note these, who these women are as we encounter them. And then to think after Mm -hmm. we've encountered all of them is to say like, okay, now that we've encountered all of them, once we get to Mary, like, what can we say about these together? Mm -hmm. But I think it's really important to notice these women and that they are not like their stories are all, it turns out complicated in a variety of ways. And Tamar's is really complicated in the ways in the ways that you name okay i like that idea so we're going to mention the women pull out their story just a little bit and then have some space to reflect afterwards so. about why great by the way in my i wrote a little i wrote a little book on um with included a chapter on ruth and i mentioned tamar as a canaanite ancestor of david and mm. amy joe levine reviewed my book or she's like read it for me and like blurbed it and she made a note. I think you probably read this note. That was like, Tamar was not Canaanite. And I was like, oh, that was very definitive. <laughs> like, who might argue with Amy Jolivine? But yeah. The other thing that made me laugh in there was I referred to uh, Esther as Queen Bee. And um, Amy Jolivine was like, what is a Queen Bee? <laughs> that made me laugh so much. That is neither here nor there. But to say that Tamar's ethnicity <laughs> is de- Debatable. You will often read that Tamar is Canaanite, but as you were saying, that's not an uh, undisputed. It's not totally clear, but yeah, it's certainly a it's certainly a solid reading, I think. Yeah. Okay, so then the next woman who is mentioned is Rahav, mm. who in so okay, story of Rahav on one foot, introduced in Joshua chapter two. She is a harlot who lives in the wall of the city of Jericho. She agrees to help the spies as they're sort of coming in on their godly mission to overtake the city. And in exchange, the spies spare her and her household from the destruction of their conquest of the city. That's exactly right. So she is very much, very clearly a Canaanite. Yeah. Who is now incorporated into this line and... Absolutely. And so with both, with Tamar and with Rahav, both, we've got some sort of, I never quite know how to talk about this, but the best I can come up with is non-normative exercise of sexuality. Yeah. Of, which mm-hmm. has a lot of problems, but you know what I mean is like Tamar has had to sleep with her father-in-law in order to secure the child that is uh, legally required by Leverett marriage. And uh, Rahav is, uh, is a prostitute. And so these these two things seem to be playing around in these stories in some way or another. Yeah. Rahab also saves her own people and by way of doing so saves Israel. Like what like the way the story is told is if Rahab right. had not done what she did, the Israelite spies would have not reported made a good report and maybe they maybe Joshua never would have entered into the Holy Land. Like that's the sort of thing that that's sets right. that whole story forward. Yep. That's right. She gives them such a good report and such courage to move forward that, yeah, they just take her word for it. This text is imagining that she married someone that I don't know, Salmon or Salmon. Right, yeah. (laughs) And gave birth to Boaz. The Jewish tradition imagines that she married Joshua. I mean, I think both of those are just sort of, she's such an epic personality and so important to the story and then the biblical text doesn't really tell us what happens yeah. with her. So Just leaves her on so the outskirts of the camp. Yeah. Yeah. So these are sort of different imaginings. Is there anything else we should know about? I mean, one thing to say about that is, I mean, Rahab is obviously at the beginning of the conquest uh, because she's sort of what enables that conquest to happen. Boaz is at the end of the period of the judges, right before the Davidic monarchy begins. And so they're separated by some 250 years. And so there is a <laughs> chronological problem here. Rahav could not have legitimately been the, um, what is she here? She's the mother of Boaz. Yeah. And so it just doesn't, the timing doesn't work out. And if, if you start to look at Matthew's genealogy, that seems to be the case quite a lot with Matthew's genealogy. 
is that it's playing a little fast and loose with who is related to whom, mm-hmm. which I think suggests what you were talking about earlier, which is it's less interested in the sort of facticity of the genealogy and it's more interested in the interpretive, li- interpretive possibilities of the genealogy. Yeah. So it's just trying to get us to, to these different connections. That's an interesting way to think about it, is that some of these are like, when you talk about like, in whose lineage are you? Yes, you can talk about literally, but we can also talk about all kind, you know, spiritual lineage and yeah. um, intellectual lineage and, and all of that. So yeah. it's an interesting other lens to put on it. And then this text gives us Ruth. Mm. Tell us something about Ruth, Bobby. I feel like Ruth is one of your <laughs> well, one of your precious characters. I don't know about that, but I have written a little bit about Ruth. She, of course, was a Moabite, and she married an Israelite who then proceeded to die along with his brother and father. And so the way the story goes is Ruth the Moabite ends up being widowed and alone with her Israelite mother-in-law, Naomi. When Naomi decides to return to Israel from Moab, Ruth commits herself to Naomi and goes home with her and becomes a Moabite foreigner uh, and widow in Israel. And through that story, basically what happens is Ruth figures out ways to keep them fed by gleaning in the fields of Boaz and um, keeps her mother-in-law and herself alive. And then Naomi eventually comes up with a plan by which Ruth can find a husband, Boaz, for herself. And so there's this complicated scene we probably don't need to go into overly much, but in which Ruth basically seduces Boaz on the threshing floor and uh, convinces him to marry her. And so she then marries into the family line of Israel and becomes the mother of Obed, who is the father of Jesse, who's David's father. Um, so mm-hmm. she becomes the, whatever that is, grandmother, David, <laughs> David, Jesse, Obed, great grandmother. Great grandmother. Yeah. Great grandmother. Yeah. I always have trouble with exactly, but yeah. So, so then here is the claim and it's, I mean, it's explicitly made in the book of Ruth as well. And they're trying to connect the fact that Ruth the Moabite was the great-grandmother of David, the great Israelite, Judahite king. I don't know what else you would say in there. Again, you have a Gentile. Again, you have non-normative exercise of sexuality. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yes. And in this case, some willingness to, like, leave her homeland, leave, you know, whatever tradition she You have to join with the people of Israel. Yeah. 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 It's just so interesting to me that the genealogy like really intentionally pulls out these women as mothers mm-hmm. and also only mentions the birth of sons. You know, like the yeah. lineage they're tracing is the lineage of the men. That's exactly right. And, you know, we talked about that a little bit last time that that this is part of what's critical about Joseph's role is that he is the one who can place the child within a lineage in a way that maybe Mary could not have done because maybe that's just not how the world worked. Right. It's just a really interesting contrast to me where the women show up and where they don't. Mm -hmm. No, that's exactly right. It is interesting that women show up here and it's also interesting the ways in which they don't show up here. That's right, exactly right. Yeah, yeah. Hi, I'm Terry Peterson, minister of St. John's Church of Scotland in Gurich, west of Glasgow on the Scottish coast. And I am the liturgy writer for Bible Worm, which means I get to spend a lot of time listening to Bobby and Amy, and that is a great joy. It is fascinating to hear them read and talk through stories I thought I knew pretty well since I'm starting my third time through the narrative lectionary now. I always come away with more ideas than I can fit into a liturgy or a sermon, and working with them has deepened my own spiritual life as I write liturgy that follows the contours of their conversations. I appreciate that they don't shy away from the difficult parts, and that they always find connections between these ancient texts and our contemporary life. And it's fun for me to work those connections into liturgy that empowers worshiping communities to speak to and about God in new ways. If you join the Bible Worm Patreon at the Liturgy Worm level or higher, 
You'll have access to those liturgies and prayers that you can use or adapt, as well as early access to the podcast. Or there are other levels with different benefits, including Bible studies, access to the Bible Worm Collaborative Discussion Group, and more. Visit patreon.com slash Podcast to help Bobby and Amy continue creating this incredible resource for people of faith around the world. And now back to this week's podcast. Okay. Do you want to say anything else about this first section, or would you like to hear me try to read more names? I want to, I want to hear more names. Okay, let's see how bad these ones are. So I'm picking up in the second half of verse 6. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Mm. The wife of Uriah. Yeah. That seems so harsh to me that Bathsheba is not named. Yeah. What do you what what do you think of that? What do you draw out of that? I mean, to me the effect the, the effect of it is twofold for me. One is similarly to Tamar, the the ethnicity of Bathsheba is not entirely clear. She seems in my mm. reading to be an Israelite. She is married to a Hittite. And so to name Uriah calls to mind the fact that she was married to a Hittite and therefore in rabbinic understanding sort of had left the Jewish fold, I guess. Or I don't know exactly how you talk about that, but Yeah, yeah. She had made she her ethnicity was not as kind of cut and dried as, as yeah. it might have been. The other thing is by naming her as the wife of Uriah. It's doing exactly what when we read that text a few weeks ago or months ago, whenever it was now, it draws you exactly back to the treachery of David yeah. and what he did to Uriah and by extension uh, to Bathsheba. But it's, it is less interested in her and more interested in the wrongdoing of the, of the man in that story. I'm curious when you ask that question, what, you, what you're thinking about. I was thinking along the lines of the second one that it 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 feels to it feels to me like it really highlights David's terrible <laughs> act you know through yeah. it, there's no way to read it without thinking about that yeah although i love that you also pulled in that Uriah is a hittite and so then it sort of is like in case in case people didn't pick up those two aspects of the three women who were mentioned before, just by virtue of the fact that they they identify Bathsheba not by her name but as wife of Uriah. Yeah, it it really underscores those two things in particular. Now that we've done our special episode on Bathsheba, where we talk about that really interesting story in First Kings one, where mm. she has more agency, I feel doubly impoverished that she's just mentioned here as the wife of Uriah, like she. She's so much more interesting than that in the biblical text. Yeah. I mean, no, you can I obviously totally, go back yes. and fill it in, but it's not, the genealogy doesn't invite us really to think about anything but that one incident. Yes, I think you're exactly right. And I think that whereas in some of the, that's such a good point, Bobby, because the other women, I pull in both the way that they were sort of, you know, quote unquote, strange and their real like tenacity and intelligence and yeah. creativity and just the way that they had to move through the world, given, you know, the cards they were dealt. And by calling her the wife of Uriah, it really doesn't call up that. It, it's very much the the second Samuel version of Bathsheba, you know, that just that one story as opposed to what we read in First Kings that really fills her out. She, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that's exactly right. Bobby, there are a couple of differences in here 
from the Hebrew Bible. Although now that you already have pointed out that you know that you know that Matthew places Rahav in a sort of a different time period <laughs> yeah. than when she lived, you know, may, maybe there's really not maybe there's not so much that we need to say about it. I think it's worth saying anyway, though. Can you? Well, what did you, you notice about I'll, that? Yeah. So what what I noticed is, so it in verse seven, according to First Chronicles, I don't know if that's such a great source either, but First Chronicles three, Abijah's son is named Asa, not Asaph. Mm-hmm. The son of Manasseh is Ammon, not mm. Amos. That's in Second Kings nineteen. Um, those might, I think those are, I think those are the two that I noticed in this. The other thing that I noticed is right there in verse 11 was it says, uh, Josiah was the father of Jeconiah, Jehoiakim. Um, but in fact, Josiah was the grandfather of Jehoiakim. And so the, I mean, I don't know how important it is, but we're going to see in a minute that Matthew's got this schema of 14 generations. Yeah. And one of the things that I, it's not obvious when you read this, but as should be obvious the more you dig into it, is that Matthew has toyed with things in order to get- He has made it that way. Yeah. yeah, He has created 14s by, manipulating might be strong, but just like massaging the Mm -hmm. genealogy a little bit. And so just the the point is the same, that this this genealogy is more interested in some kind of theological claim about the lineage of Jesus than it is in a totally accurate- accounting of Jesus's ancestors. Which is a really helpful, mm, I don't know if corrective is quite the right word, but I don't know, an additional layer to think of. You know, I, I started out with the question, like, why would you start with a genealogy? Like, don't you want to start with theology? Yeah. <laughs> and And part of what I hear is that genealogy doesn't have to be without theological yeah. point, yeah. you know? And right. yeah, we can see here that that Matthew is is working with this That's in right. a way that'll get him where he wants to be. Right. I okay. I'm just going to be honest here. I stopped reading where I stopped reading because that's the end of the paragraph in my translation. Yeah. <laughs> the timestamp of the the Babylonian deportation. So that there's nothing in the translation that says this is a significant moment, but it is. It is. It is like a watershed. Yeah. Moment. And I just thought it might be helpful to to pause for a minute and think about what what shifts at that time, yeah. like after after the Babylonian deportation. Like it's it's one of those things that it's like before or after. Well, I mean, I guess it, it's close to the destruction of the temple. It's not necessarily right on top of the destruction of the temple, but yeah, it's one of those those things that the world is just entirely different. Afterwards. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think that's really well said. You know, it's not just that it's a break in the paragraph either, because Matthew's going to come back in verse 17, and he's going to mark it again. Mm. Abraham to David, David to exile, exile to Jesus. And so the, like, the way that the genealogy is structured points us to David, points us to the exile, points us to Jesus. Yeah. And so I think you're exactly right to notice that. And the question that you asked about in what, like the, these are world-changing events. David was a world-changing event that started the Davidic monarchy. The exile is a world-changing event. And it is the demise of the monarchy. And so right there in that little bit you read, well, that was a whole monarchical period of ancient Israel. But there's more to it as you're gesturing to about not just the end of a way of governing, but the whole end of sort of a way of being in the world. When you think about the exile, what do you, when you think about those changes, I'm just curious, like, how do you, how do you name that? Well, there are two things that, that sort of come to the top of my mind. One of them has a little more to do with the destruction of the temple than the exile, but those events are sort of so, so close to each other historically. You know, so much of the, the biblical text around that time had this sort of, I mean, the, the whole theology was that. Zion, Jerusalem was was the place where God's dwelling was most concentrated and was because of that protected in some way. And the temple itself was like that that <laughs> it, it, it was the the portal to any kind of interaction 
with God. Yeah. And so to have that, not just have the temple no, I mean, to have the temple no longer available and have to figure out some other completely different way to interact with God. And then also to wonder, well, was, was it never true that God was present in Jerusalem in a different kind of way? Or was God defeated and mm-hmm. God used to be present there? Or has God abandoned us? Like, wh- it has really big theological implications. Yeah. The other thing that comes to my mind is just that, maybe a little more practically speaking, the concentration of of the people Israel, I, I mean, I don't really want to call them Jews yet at this point in history, really being in one area, it, it's never quite the same after the exile. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, people do come back, but some people don't come back. And so I feel like it's the beginning of this ongoing tradition of diaspora community and of Israelite religion interacting with all of these other religions more so than they did because because people are are living you know outside of outside of Israel. And that those both seem like really important things for the beginning of Christianity too. Yeah. I love that way of thinking about it. You know, the first movement of the genealogy from Abraham to David feels very triumphal. Like there's this, there's this promise made to Abraham at the very beginning, and it culminates in the Davidic monarchy, like this amazing moment. And then that then in the second movement leads to the exile. And I love the way you're drawing out the tragedy and the crisis of exile. But that second move that you made about diaspora And when you come back to the promise to Abraham, through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Like one of the ways that that happens is through the dispersion. And now Mm. people all over the world come into contact with the people of God. And so that that which appears to be tragedy, I mean, and is tragedy, also has to it this possibility that one might not be able to see in the moment. But looking back on it from where Matthew sits, I think you can absolutely see it that way. I think that's really rich. That movement from David to exile is tragic, but also makes possible what is getting. But yeah, but also necessary for this story. Yeah. The other thing that was happening to me as you read that section was I was noticing, I mean, I don't know all of these kings super well, but I was noticing like, oh, Hezekiah, like that guy was awesome. Like he was was. one of the kings like David. (laughs) And I was like, oh, look, Jesus is in the line of all the good kings. And then I was like, oh, nope, nope, there's Manasseh. (laughs) Manasseh was a terrible guy. Like the Deuteronomistic historian hates them. And then I was like, oh, wait, there's Josiah. Yeah. Like there's just this mixture. Like I I think it's Mm. important that Jesus is related to the, Hezekiahs and the Josiahs and the Davids, like all the kings that are remembered as great kings. But in this genealogy also descended from the really terrible kings who did really terrible things. And I think there's something important about that, sort of the mix of the genealogy when you can identify the the people. It's it's not a it's not just a line of wonderful folk. It's it's not just a line of terrible folks. It's just a line of like humanity Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. with all the good and the bad that comes. I think that's really important. Should we read the last section of names? I think we should. Okay. It's probably worth saying at this point, the sources that Matthew's using kind of run out. And so Matthew, we don't really know where he got this part of the genealogy from, but anyway. here. Oh, yeah, this last good. section? Yeah, the last little bit. Yeah, yes, yes. There's some new new, new names in here. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you're exactly right, Bobby. He marks it again in verse 12 after the deportation to Babylon. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's important to him too. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Salathiel, and Salathiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, 
and from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. Okay, I really want to talk about this 14, the 14 mm, thing. Yeah. <laughs> so we'll, we'll get to that in a minute, but first let's see if there's any, I mean, you mentioned we don't even know who all these people are, but <laughs> is, what else do we need to pull out from the genealogy itself? I mean, the one thing that really stands out to me is Joseph, whose father is Jacob. Mm. There is clearly some kind of connection being drawn, trying to mold the New Testament Joseph in the model of the Hebrew scripture Joseph in the book of Genesis. His father's Jacob. He's a dreamer. He's a righteous person who does what's right. There is some, I mean, I don't know exactly. He escapes into Egypt and then comes back, as we'll see in a couple of weeks, and there's something going on there with that Joseph connection. I don't really know That's what to so make of it. It just seems interesting. No, but to me. and it, it stood out to me too. And and you know, even we talked about sort of starting with creation in a way that maybe is echoing the beginning of Genesis. And Joseph sort of takes us all the way to the end of the book of Genesis. So it, it's just interesting to look at the whole genealogy as sort of the 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 gospel of matthew version of genesis like these yeah. are these are the stories of the matriarchs and the patriarchs that sort of you know set everything into motion yeah. okay so you have already pointed out that the the 14 generations here is a little you know matthew made it 14 right Will you talk about, so it's so funny because the first time I read it, I was like, 14, that's a really random number. But clearly it's not a random number. It is not random. The way in which it is not random is not entirely clear. (laughs) It is very clear. (laughs) But it is meaningful. Yeah. So do you have some possibilities in mind for what, what 14 might signify or how it might resonate? I mean, so... One of them is something that you said earlier. I don't know that 14 necessarily plays exactly in here, but there seems to be a sense here that a world-changing event happens every 14th generation. So there's Mm. Abraham, 14 later there's David, 14 later there's exile, 14 later there's Jesus. And so, I mean, the message there is something like, it's time for the world to shift, y'all. And here's this baby boy, Jesus. And so the fact of the repetition, I think, in every like a predictable sequence of time leads to something earth shattering. And then and this is the moment that Jesus is born. I think that's important. Mm-hmm. Another way some people have thought about 14 is that 14 is, you know, it's a multiple of seven. Mm-hmm. Seven is the sort of perfected number. It's the rhythm of the weeks. It's the sort of marker mm-hmm. of time. Mm-hmm. And so you can think of 14 as sort of the double double of the perfection or the fullness of time. Like, I don't quite know how you get there. Mm-hmm. But I think mm-hmm. that there's something in there about 14 as, as playing with the fullness of time is marked by sevens. Yes. I can't quite say that the way I want to say it, but you, you know what I'm after. What What would you say about the 14s? Um... The only thing that I would add, I mean, I, I was going to, you know, point out also seven as maybe representing wholeness in some way. Yeah. There's, you know, the priestly author in the Torah has a particular love for seven. And yeah. you can find a lot of patterns of seven in, in some of the texts that are, you know, by that hand, including the the building of the Mishkan in Exodus that I know at least there there's some some connections in maybe I think Greek orthodoxy between the Mishkan and the womb of Mary. And, you know, it's seven has theological heft to it. Yeah. There's also, you know, there, there's this thing called gematria where each letter of the Hebrew alphabet in order is assigned a number. So, you know, Aleph is one, Bet is two, Gimel is three. And so if you and so you can take any Hebrew word and give it a numerical value by adding up the value of its consonants. Yeah. And at different times in history, people have just gone hog wild with this because yeah. you can, you can connect all kinds of words this way that that you wouldn't really be able to connect any other way. So following Gematria, 14 is the value of David. 
Yeah. So if Matthew really wants to raise up, you know, that aspect of uh, this lineage, then then that could be a way to do it. I really Very like subtle, that a lot. I like that a lot. <laughs> Dia, did you watch Shit's Creek? A little bit. I'd love I'll, to know enough to know. Ew, David. Yeah. <laughs> when I teach this uh, in my classes, I talk about fourteen, 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 and then I go, David, 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 <laughs> which makes <laughs> which makes me laugh. But I do think that's kind of one way that's of reading funny. this is that David that's is really permeating funny. the uh, permeating the genealogy, not just in the one spot, but the whole thing is kind of encompassed in the Davidness. The Davidness of, of it. Yeah. And then I think it's, I mean, I think it's important to point out that this last one, this last grouping, I think, only has 13 generations, which means, you know, you st- that I, I mentioned earlier that something you said in your introduction had me thinking about the text, that, and that was this, that, that, that Matthew is really speaking to the first generation of the church. Mm-hmm. And so that would, that would make them the 14th generation. Yeah. That's pretty empowering. Although that I don't really know why is. he wouldn't have just, I don't know why he wouldn't have just, like saying that there were already 14 generations, someone would have to go back and like check his math to realize that. So <laughs> yeah. I don't know if it was. But I've always just said Matthew just miscounted and he thought there were 13. He thought there were 14, but there's only 13. But I love what you did with it so much more. Which is the, <laughs> the church is the 14th generation. And so this genealogy is all about the church. I think that's really lovely. I don't know what to do with yeah, it. Maybe. I don't know what to yeah. do with that detail. Um, I always hesitate to make too much of it, but which I don't know why. Like I never hesitate to make too much of anything. <laughs> like I make too much of all kinds of things. But, well, um, but it's yeah, it's hard, especially with numbers, because I feel like there's a we have a, an association of concreteness with numbers that yeah. yeah that we just can't we can't exactly get to. But it really seems like he must he must be pointing to something really specific by pointing out the fourteen. Yeah. Yeah, I can't even count. I'm trying to go back and count, and I can't even count it. I I don't even know. I don't oh even well, then know. maybe it's it's not. No, it's people not always say that. Fault. People always say that. It's true. <laughs> I just can't. I just can't. I don't know. I wonder if there's just a different way to count. We'd have to draw. We could draw a tree. <laughs> I can't yeah. even make a family tree of my own family. I don't know the rules of the trees. Although this would be very simple because you just have the father and the be. son for everybody. That's right. You just occasionally you just have a little branch off. Yeah, and occasionally there's yeah. Occasionally someone has brothers. Yeah. And occasionally there's a, a mother. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. Let's talk about those mothers. Are you ready to do that? I'm so curious. Let's now. talk about those mothers. Yeah. We got a fifth woman introduced here right at the end. The husband of Mary of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. So she's def- sort of defined on the one side by her husband and on the other side by her son, but but she's named there. Yeah. It always troubles my students that this is the genealogy of Joseph, but then Mary is actually the biological parent of Jesus. And they're like, why didn't we have, we should have had Je- Mary's genealogy. We talked about that on our podcast uh, about Matthew 1, 18 to 25, that what seems to be happening here is this genealogy is establishing Jesus legally in the family line of Joseph, who is related to David. It's not actually that concerned with the biological lineage of Jesus himself, but with the family line to which he legally belongs by being adopted into the family of Joseph. So just to get that out of the way. Now that we have this fifth woman, Mary, and the four we were talking about earlier, and we're trying to think about you could have told this genealogy without any of these women, but he drew specific attention to these four. Well, these five and none others. None others. That's not good English. <laughs> I liked it. I thought it was like old English. It was like the f- so fancy that I didn't even know that that's what you're supposed to say. Anywho, that's not the point. What Do you have ways of like starting to think about how to put all of it together? Like why? I don't know. If, why did Matthew do it? Is it such a bad question? But like, what significance can we draw out of the fact that these women are here? I mean, I find the question that I'm drawn to, what do the stories of the other women, what can they tell us about Mary? Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's the right question, and I don't know if I'm just asking that question because I'm reading this not knowing a whole lot about Mary. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> nobody knows a lot about Mary. 
do you think we can infer, what do you think we can infer about her from the presence of the other women? I mean, for one thing, maybe this is like sort of a bizarre thing to point out. She, though, Mary also got pregnant through very unconventional methods, (laughs) you know, of a very, of a different sort but it does sort of, again, underscore the, like, there's the regular, the sort of, God, yeah, well, language is really hard around this. There's the socially acceptable, regular, expected, I don't know, way of doing things. Mm-hmm. And then there's how life unfolded for all of these women in ways that could easily bring judgment or or did bring some judgment upon Absolutely. them. You know, we just read about Joseph almost calling off the engagement because all of a sudden his betrothed is pregnant and society would certainly not fault him. They expect him to do that. Right. So I, I definitely see that connection. And I wonder about I wonder about whether Mary was sort of an outsider in some way or if she had to leave things behind in order to live the life that she was living or... I don't know. Do you have thoughts on that sort of side of the equation? That interpretation that it's the exercise of sexuality that's sort of being described here is pretty, that has a long history and interpretation. Mm -hmm. And so to say, you know, Mary is uh, pregnant in this one unusual way, but this is a story that we're familiar with and God has done things through women in unexpected ways all through history. And this this is not new in that way. And I think that's a helpful way of reading it. The question of what else can we infer f- about Mary from these other women, I think is really, really interesting. I don't know, you know, we get some backstory about Mary in non-canonical places, which I, I mean, it makes that story even more complicated. Mm-hmm. But one of the places where my head goes is you a little while ago commenting. I don't even remember exactly in what context. Oh, it was in, it was talking about uh, Bathsheba being called the wife of Uriah. But what you were saying was the women in this story, and you know, our special episode series has tried to draw this out in ways that I don't think we were pointing to this moment, but it's just the natural way of reading those stories. That all of these women are women who did something really brave and smart and challenge the structures in which they were living in order to further, I mean, and we have sort of debated further their own interests or further God's interests or further the life of the people of Israel. Maybe all of those things are related. Certainly you get that in the story of Tamar and certainly you get that in Rahav and Bathsheba, especially if you read 1 Kings 1 along with it. Oh, and in the story of Ruth as well. So, I mean, I think one could read Mary that way, is that this this text is trying to put Mary in this lineage of women, or at least, a, I guess she's not technically in their lineage, but she is being associated with them as women who are strong and able to function outside the norms of patriarchal expectation, who are able to do something kind of remarkable to further God's plan in the world. And so we've seen this all in the past, and here we're, here we're seeing it again with Mary. I don't know how much further than that I can press into the character of Mary herself. Any thoughts about that? I love that, Bobby. And and while you were talking, you had me thinking about the ways in which all of these women, yes, using all these characteristics we've talked about and, and some particulars about their life, but they kind of have to forge a path where there's not a path. Yeah. You know, like no one's going to be able to tell Mary how to, be the mother of the Messiah, like, <laughs> you know, like, you know, yeah. like there's, there's not really an example to follow here. And as I'm thinking, I'm like, does that exactly hold for all the women? I don't know. I haven't, I'm just sort of thinking right. out loud here, but it's, all of them are willing to go outside or have to go outside. Several of them have no choice, but to go outside of the usual way of doing things. And, uh, and it's a good thing they did, or yeah. this lineage would have fallen apart and yeah. we wouldn't have landed where we landed. Then the question of, well, why would Matthew then include these women in this genealogy when he could have not included them becomes yeah. something like you can't legitimately tell the story of Jesus without telling the story of women. 
who did exactly what you're just saying to make a way forward in a world that wasn't offering them a particularly good way forward. Like the story of Jesus does not happen without that. And you, then you can't tell it or you shouldn't tell it. Although Luke actually does. But um, in Matthew's perspective, you can't tell it without acknowledging those women. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's really important. There is also a way of reading the women in their, ethnic diversity, uh, mm-hmm. which is sometimes done, often done. The characters of Tamar and Bathsheba, as we've noticed, complicate that reading just a little bit because their ethnicity is not entirely clear. The sort of wooden way of talking about it is that these four women prior to Mary are Gentiles, and they're at least uh, women whose ethnicity is ambiguous in some way. Two of them are explicitly Gentiles. Two of them are it's less clear. If you read it that way, then you end up with something like Matthew begins with Abraham because this is a fundamentally Jewish story. But you can't tell this story without telling the story of women who were Gentiles. Not only can you not tell Jesus' story, but you can't tell the story of David or anybody else without also telling the story of Gentile women in the lineage of Israel. And so then, then there is some connection of Gentiles have always been part of the story of Israel. There's always been a community that is ethnically diverse. This, what's happening with Jesus, what's ultimately happening when the Christian church begins to open up the covenant to Gentiles, that's not something totally new and different. That's just an outgrowth of what has always already been the case. And so I think one can read the genealogy, the inclusion of the women as the inclusion of Gentiles in the Jesus story from the very beginning in the story of Abraham and David all the way down. I love that. I think that's, I think that's such an important, such an important lens and such an important sort of, I want to say like centerpiece to the way that we tell the way that we tell this story. And, 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 you know, this will surprise none of us, but Religious communities of all stripes have seemed to have groups within them that that precisely want to take these things out of their own story and say, like, no, there are not <laughs> there are not these sort of people on the margins, and we are a closed group, and there are not people that have you know sexual unions that don't check off the following boxes, and 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 this way of telling the genealogy seems really pointedly to contradict that. Mm-hmm. Bobby, I feel like in this last conversation, we've already started to open the door towards what are some some bigger takeaways that we might have for this text. But what would you want to raise up for folks from this genealogy? Seventeen verses of genealogy. <laughs> yeah. What have you got? Now, this is such a rich text. It's such a surprisingly rich text, and I think people sometimes skip this because they're just like, blah 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 blah. So and so begat so and so. But there's so much in here as we've been sort of drawing out. I think where you ended up was was really important. And I think the point of this genealogy at some level is simply the way you tell the story matters. The way you tell the story of Jesus matters. And as you were just pointing out, the way you tell your own story matters. Like who belongs to your community and where does your community come from? And one of the things that I love about this genealogy is that Matthew puts in there some people that don't have to be in there. They are women. They are Gentiles. And they are people with complicated histories. And, you know, we were talking about how he describes Bathsheba as the wife of Uriah as basically a way of saying, this is the woman that David raped, I I think, Mm -hmm. Like it's calling that story back to mind. You would just as soon tell the history of your people without telling that story. Without telling that story, right. You would just as soon remember the history of your people without talking about the time that Tamar had to sleep with her father-in-law because Mm -hmm. the men in that story wouldn't fulfill their legal obligations. You would rather tell your family story without talking about how Ruth had to come back and experience Mm -hmm. anti-immigrant sentiment in Bethlehem. You would rather tell that story without having to think about 
how Rahab was a prostitute who had to turn against her own people in order to survive. Like, you don't want to tell those pieces of the story. And Matthew is drawing our attention exactly to those points. You can't tell the story of Jesus without those parts. We got to acknowledge where he comes from in all of its complication and all of its beauty. And all of those complicated stories also have their beautiful sides and these, these women who are strong and powerful and smart and made a way where there was no way. And I just really love that as a way of beginning the gospel that's going to end up being mostly about this man, Jesus. But it starts out by acknowledging that Jesus comes from a line of women who lived in a patriarchal world in which they had to make a way, which they were often mistreated, in which they didn't really fit in, and yet they were integral to the story. I don't quite know what to do with that, but I, but I love that as a way of thinking about Jesus. And I love that as a way of thinking about the way we talk about ourselves mm-hmm. and our willingness just to acknowledge the painful, complicated parts of our past, to tell the stories of people that are often not represented in the way we tell their stories of the past. Yeah. Try to lift up those people and their, their contributions that have always been there. That seems really important in this text. Yeah. I love that. I love it. And it, and I, I don't know if I have a whole lot more to add to it, except, you know, sort of picking up from what you're, what you're saying in our conversation before, like there's the, there's the biological lineage and then there's the like spiritual lineage and sort of thinking about like the, the nurture side of it. Like how are the folks in these families raised and you know, what stories might they have heard? Yeah. And, and this is telling a story about a, a Messiah who's in the lineage of people who walk away from things that are holding them back or take matters into their own hands, even when it makes other people really angry or fight for the well-being of their loved ones until their, you know, last breath. And, and those are all, you know, characteristics that we're going to see play out in, in this person and it's interesting to see that lineage come through Joseph, who will raise him as his father. And, you know, also we can think about the comparisons with Mary and the other women. It's a pretty powerful household. It's a really powerful, a household. powerful household. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't think we'd get quite so much out of a genealogy, Bobby. Yeah, you never know. You never know what you can find in the text. The text is endlessly fascinating. Next week, we are reading Matthew chapter 3, the story of Jesus's baptism. I'm looking forward to it. All righty. I will see you then. Okay. See you, Amy. Bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Bible Worm. If you've enjoyed this free podcast, we hope you'll help us keep it going by joining our Patreon for as little as $4 per month. You can also sign up for other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more. Visit patreon.com slash Podcast for details. Bible Worm is produced by Bobby Williamson and edited by Joel and Laura Becker. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagby, and our theme music is The World at Large by Dano Songs. Many thanks to all our Patreon supporters for helping make this podcast possible. Special thank you to our newest supporters, Brad Koch, Bob Fusler, Jeremy Scott, and Ron Brown. I hope you'll join us again next time when the Narrative Lectionary takes us to Matthew chapter 3, the story of Jesus' baptism. Until then, keep on digging.